is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Of course, the Territory in the north of WA has been on high alert with the ongoing flooding. Hundreds and hundreds of mils of rain falling across the north, brought on by ex-tropical cyclone Ellie. We've spent a bit of time in WA this week, but I wanted to ta- want to take you to Timber Creek today, where one family has had oh, a heck of a year. We got burnt out at the start of the year, so we've gone from gone from fire to flood, really. Uh, we spent most of the year sort of scratching for enough grass for our cattle and horses and feeding out a lot of the lick and, and supplement. Uh, and now we've got the grass but no fences to actually put them in a paddock to utilise that grass. You'll hear more from Timber Creek very shortly. I'll also take you to WA for the latest on those floods around the Fitzroy Valley. Also this afternoon, on a much less serious note, if you're a fan of the great outdoors, I wonder whether you've ever had this experience. felt like a moss or something had flown into my ear, so that's when I sat up and started shaking my head, going, oh, you know, to try and make it fly out. Um, and then it's gone in further, and that's when I've, got, I've, I've said to my husband, I'm like, oh, my God, turn the lights on, turn the lights on, there's something in my ear. There was something in her ear. Spoiler alert, it wasn't a moth. You will hear the full story of exactly what crawled into her ear and what happened next. That coming up before 1.30, if you have a story of something crawling into your ear or even just stories of bugs or cockroaches while you're camping. I want to hear them. 0487 1057 is the text line. First this afternoon, an Indigenous-owned company has become the single largest holder of mud crab licences in the NT. The Aboriginal Sea Company, which was set up earlier this year with the funding from the NT government following the Blue Mud Bay negotiations, has bought 10 of the 49 mud crab licences in the NT. Chairman Calvin Devereaux told Dan Fitzgerald why the company wanted to invest in mud crabs. The company's um, been set up to be proactive within the um, seafood industry and not just the seafood industry, um, I, I think um, anything to do with the ocean, you know, ferries, um, freight and, and so forth. So any, anything to do with um, developing economic development to do with um, sea country and, and traditional owners, I think it's just a good platform for them to start. So. We initially um, started talking about the intertidal zone and what it meant and so we've identified the crabbing industry as um, probably more more within that area and the opportunities that it would provide for training, economic development, employment, uh, you know, and, and independence, I suppose, for Aboriginal communities out on the, out on these re- remote um coastal homelands to participate in, in one of their Australia's biggest industries. So the Aboriginal Sea Company now owns 10 mud crab licences. Uh, what will happen with those licences? So those licences will continue to operate, um, the 10 licences, um, as they are. We've, we've only bought the ownership of them. And in the coming year, um, we hopefully implement um, training modules and um, you know, um, get training and, and Aboriginal people involved in, in those those ten licences that we've now purchased. 
so is the idea to potentially get uh, people in remote Indigenous communities to, to be working those licences and, and potentially taking them over? Yes, that's right. That's right. And how much sort of uh, training and, and, and skills development needs to be done to make that happen? Well, crabbing is essentially been a part of our traditional cultures, you know, for many thousands of years. And um, to be commercial, I don't think it takes much more um, because of traditional knowledge systems um, in regards to the resource itself. And so it just makes it um, ideal that that integrated knowledge systems um, into that commercial industry, you know, benefits um, those Aboriginal people out in those areas. And is the feeling you're getting, is that uh, something that people in, in remote communities are interested in and, and are keen to get involved in? Yes, um, there, there is a, um, a lot of interest in, in the sea company around Northern Australia um, and particularly um, with getting um, Aboriginal people involved in, in the seafood industry um, as, a, as a means to getting a foot in the door and moving forward um, for economic development and um, opening up regional areas. For those who don't know much about the Aboriginal Sea Company being pretty new, who shares in the profits from these mud crab licences and, and future investments? So the Sea Company's um, set up to as, as two holdings, one's operational and one's holdings for the assets, um, and so the money will go back um, into the, you know, if it's ca- if it's assets, it'll go into the holdings, and the capital goes into, uh, rather the rest of it goes into the the company itself um, to orchestrate training um, and facilitate economic development um, where there's interest in relevant regional areas. And so uh, you've got these mud crab licences now. Uh, what other project is uh, the Sea Company looking at? Um, well, the between the three land council, land council and Biliakwa and Tiwi, um, there seems to be a lot of um, interest, you know, within those relevant land councils um, from t- traditional owners um, endeavouring to start off on um, implementing their own particular niche in industry um, with seafood resources. And so there is a lot of interest um, out there. Um, and the sea company hopes to facilitate a lot more, um, you know, in, into mainstream implementation. So, you know, export um, and so forth. Uh, just lastly, Calvin, um, alongside uh, being the chair of the Aboriginal Sea Company, you're also at Twin Hill Station out uh, on the Finnis River floodplain. How's the wet season been out there and uh, what's that meant for all the, the cattle on the property? Um, we're in the middle of destocking now. We've still got a fair few to go, but the the monsoon's been pretty heavy out here. We've had uh, more than more than average rainfall, and so it, it's looking like a pretty good season um, for the next season, anyhow, um, because there's plenty of water. Um, the estuaries and the river systems will no doubt have good um, fishing for the recreationals and and so forth, and the commercials in the coming season. And so I reckon it's just a bonus season all around, um, this monsoon that's come in and it's um, sort of lingering around. We're getting steady showers every day. And so, um, yeah, that's that's what we're up to at the moment. Oh, well, hopefully there's still some more rain to come. Uh, thanks for your time on the Country Hour. No worries. Thank you.
Chairman of the Aboriginal Sea Company, Calvin Devereaux. He was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. It's 22 to 1 on the Country Hour. Let's have some music from Alan Jackson. This is Drive. Alan Jackson and Drive. It's 18 to 1. America. And hi, I'm Billy. And we're, we're from, from Eagle, Eagle Rock, Rock Station. Station. I listen to the Country Hour podcast as I'm out and about on the station, and so should you. Hope everyone's having a good season and enjoying their lunch. You're listening, listening to, to the, the Country Hour. Yes, you are. It's good to have you with me this afternoon. Michelle Stanley's my name. Residents of Timber Creek and surrounding outstations are still recovering from the floods that ripped through the area just before Christmas. The one in 50 year flood not only damaged many houses and businesses in the town, but also washed away plenty of fences on surrounding cattle stations. Rainey and Potter Holcomb run cattle around Timber Creek. They told Roxanne Fitzgerald about the damage to their property. Our house, because our house is based in Timber Creek, the township sort of itself, um, it was fine. But our, our lease country on the edge of town, um, we've lost all our fencing out there. Um, our plant horses that we use for mustering, we were pretty concerned about their welfare. Their paddock, I think, was pretty much underwater, but um, thankfully all our livestock's sort of all accounted for at this point. And, um, but, yeah, they can sort of roam anywhere at the minute. We've, we've sort of been trying to develop the property over the last sort of five years with um, fencing and troughs, etc. And, um, yeah, a lot of that hard work has now gone down the creek. <laughs> How long is it going to take to get back to normal and get all that fencing back up and running? Well... How long's a piece of string? Yeah. Um, I guess it's the financial side of it more than anything and the time, I suppose, um, especially with the cost of steel and barb and pickets and all the right that's gone through the roof in the last two, three years. So, <clears throat> um, And essentially it's sort of... can't really do that much at the minute because it's that, that wet, the ground's that wet, you can't get machinery in there, you can't drive a Toyota along the fence line. Um, it's all sort of all just being able to get out of the bike and and get what you can done with the bike and whatever you can cart on a quad sort of thing. So I would I think once it dries out and we can get a good crack at it, then then a month should we should have it covered. I mean, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. We're 600 kilometres from Darwin and 300 kilometres from Catherine. Does that kind of distance make it more difficult to get, um, you know, people to come and work for you and uh, the materials? I think the labour force will mainly just be Potter. Yeah. And if I, if I can get my mum to come help with the kids, I'll be able to give him a hand here and there. Um, yeah, it's a bit hard to, to get anybody to help at this time of the year. All our staff that we use for our contract mustering have, you know, gone home for the wet season and, and having their well-deserved break. So it's sort of whatever we can sort of get done before the mustering season starts again because once it dries out and people want to start mustering, then like Potter said before, you know, our personal property gets put on hold sort of thing and, and we go and do everybody else's jobs. So, yeah. And you've got two young children, so we can hear there's a lot to be juggling. Um, what was it like in the days before that big flood event? Look, it's sort of we got burnt out at the start of the year, so we've gone from gone from fire to flood. Really, uh, we spent most of the year sort of scratching for enough grass for our cattle and horses, and feeding out a lot of the lick and, and supplement. Uh, and now we've got the grass, but no fences to actually put them in a paddock to utilise that grass. So. It was um, look before the before that little cyclone decided to become a part of us. 
things were looking good. Like it was the best start to a wet season we've had since we've been here, and and for a long time. Like I, I when I first came here, I went to Avern, which is sort of only sixty k's to the west, and spent two years there, and and that was twenty years ago. And I don't, yeah, it was it was back when things were normal, and you did get good rain storms in October, November, and. And we had grass and things were looking good until sort of yeah, a couple of days before Christmas, I suppose. We weren't, we weren't really expecting <clears throat> the rainfall in that capacity either, I guess, because we'd heard that there was a flood warning for sort of the Kimberley, but um, we thought it was going to you know, be more sort of Kununurra area and then it sort of decided to come our way a bit more and just seemed to sit on top of us. <laughs> Rudy, you grew up in this area. Um, have you seen any weather like this before? Yeah, similar to what like Potter was saying when he first started out at Avern. Um, yeah, I grew up at Coolabar Station, and um, yeah, we used to have huge wet seasons like this quite a lot. And it, we've we've gone through quite a few floods while we we're during our time at Coolabar as well. But um, I've not seen the flooding in Timber Creek quite like this before. I do remember it going over the main road a couple of times, but probably not, um, you know, to the capacity it did this time. And, I mean, these events are always really unexpected and there's not a lot you can do to prevent the damage that will happen. But have you learned any lessons of that, any changes that you're going to make for future emergencies like this? I think probably the biggest lesson now is we know where the water goes in situations like this, so we know, you know, probably where to put our stock. I don't think we probably would really be able to put them anywhere else than what we did have them. I don't think we could have been any more prepared, really. But, um, yeah, I guess we, we do know which which paddocks probably flood a bit more and which ones have got a bit higher ground. So, you know, if we do need to move horses or cattle in the future, we probably have that knowledge now. I think it was just the rain. Like, there's always been monsoons up here. We've always had flooding, but not not to that capacity. Like, 590 mil for December, and it fell in 14 days. Um, I don't think there's much more we could have done really as far as you know preparing preparing for it i think we're lucky compared to what's happening over in the west i think they're doing it a lot yeah. tougher than, than we have and they've suffered a lot more loss than we have so i guess the whole scheme of things we're probably not doing pretty, that pretty bad lucky. really all we've got is you know 30 k's of fencing to do and we've still got our livestock and everything so i think we're fortunate compared to compared to what's happening over there that's Rainey and Potter Holcomb. They run cattle around Timber Creek and also run a contract mustering business. They mentioned the WA floods and we will take you there before one o'clock. But the Timber Creek Hotel and Caravan Park was hit pretty hard by the floods too. Water went through 14 rooms in six cabins at the business. Owner Fiona McDonald says they're still counting the costs of the damage. We've had the assessors in for um, with our insurance and they've been doing reports. They're still in progress, so the electrical report uh, has been done and we haven't seen a copy, but they've noted all the things that will need require replacement. Or Do you have a rough idea of how many rooms were damaged? Around 14. We lost six cabins that their um, floor coverings have all been removed, one... Our fishermen shacks are the worst hit. That seemed to be where the water um, like got to its lowest point. They've, um, they're going to be gutted. So, yeah, the others are minimal floor coverings um, and possible other areas. But at the moment, we didn't get into our beds. Um, so, yeah. Just... This happened um, you know, a couple of days ago now. Um, what's it been like picking up the pieces? pretty hard it was um yeah it's 
difficult to go back to normal when you've been working with so much adrenaline and just in fixed mode. Like you just, there was so much destruction and debris and the, we have had garbage trucks going out of this place like crazy with like just debris, logs, um, just yeah, so many things. The fences were wiped out on both boundaries. So with um, the insurance people have been taking them uh yeah there's just been so many things uh just new equipment that's broken and has to be replaced and it's sad to see it just it feels horrible to throw it away and we've been spending seven and a half years fixing the um, business up and renewing a lot of the accommodation so to see some of the hard work ripped out brand new cabins that we put in last may june uh, had six months and their floors are now pulled out so um, luckily they have got minimal damage it's just floor covering but yeah it's disheartening that's Fiona McDonald from the Timber Creek Hotel and Caravan Park and there's still stories emerging about how quickly the floods came through Timber Creek and the surrounding outstations. Here's Paul Buckley from the Vic Daly Regional Council speaking about how he helped rescue some people stranded in floodwaters. So I got a phone call that we had people stranded. Uh, I went with the police, the ranger and fire and rescue. We drove through water up to roughly two to 300 mil on the main highway just to get there. Once we got there, we saw a vehicle stranded in the middle of the road halfway between Might and the actual uh, Victoria Highway. We had people all over the vehicle. We tried to put a boat in to actually ferry, go out and ferry them back, which failed due to the force of the water. Then we found that we actually saw the people going from that ute that was stranded and they were walking out in the water. So we ended up getting ropes and a winch to get out far enough to try and just make it uh, a bit safer for them to get out. There was an elderly lady and a child of approximately nine months old. So the police actually went right out to them. Uh, I was one of the people halfway out in the water holding onto the winch rope and line. Uh, So once we got the multitude of that company of people, which was about 18 people, we then had to bring them back here to the um, basketball court uh, emergency centre. We then did another two trips out there with the police vehicles and the CDP um, community development program uh, Land Cruiser with a further seven people on board each time. That's Timber Creek resident Paul Buckley. He works for the Vic Daly Regional Council. And if you want to read more about how Timber Creek is recovering, there's a story up on the ABC News website right now. Just search ABC News Timber Creek. It should pop up. And if you're out on the Stewart Highway south of Tennant Creek this afternoon. Please drive carefully. There's still water over the road at various locations between Tennant Creek and Barrow Creek. 
The Department of Infrastructure is advising people to drive with extreme caution and there are obviously a lot of roads with water uh, over them or damaged in some ways from the recent rainfall and flooding. So just make sure you're checking the Roads Report website and driving safely, um, particularly in that area between Tennant Creek and Barrow Creek. It's six to one on the country hour. You'll get the latest from the Bureau of Meteorology very shortly. Let's head to WA's Kimberley now, though, where the flooding associated with ex-tropical cyclone Ellie is escalating. Fitzroy Crossing in the central Kimberley is cut off by floodwaters on both sides. The Australian Defence Force is en route to help out with the response effort and there have been fuel and food drops in by helicopter. Still hundreds of millimetres of rain is falling through that region. At Kalyeda Station, it's about 100 kilometres southwest of Fitzroy Crossing. Camille Camp and her family evacuated late yesterday. She told Steph Sinclair how quickly the floodwaters moved. So on Tuesday, uh, we sort of thought that like we knew the floodwaters were rising and we would potentially get flooding. Um, so Tuesday was spent uh, getting things as ready as possible. Um, and then we woke up Wednesday morning and the waters had rid had risen a lot quicker than what we had thought and we realised that we really weren't as prepared um, as we probably should have been. Um, And then through Wednesday, the waters, the speed that they were rising was just incredible. Um, We did think our homestead would be fine. We're we're on a sandwich um, with our homestead, so we thought we would be fine, but we actually um, ended up uh, flying to the neighbouring station by chopper yesterday afternoon just because we weren't sure if it actually would be fine. It was only about 20 metres uh, from our house and it was supposed to peak uh, at Nukumbar Crossing, the Fitzroy River was supposed to peak last night so we just didn't want to be, you know, faced with having to evacuate in the middle of the night. So we got out yesterday afternoon and when we left... Yeah, like I said, the water was about 20 metres from our house. And when I say water, I don't mean like it was lapping. I mean it was a raging river 20 metres from the front of our house. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen it anything like that before? No, I have never seen anything like this before. We've we've been at Calieta for 27 years and we've experienced flooding. Um, obviously, you experience flooding every wet season up in the Kimberley. But, um, yeah, I've never seen anything like this. How far is your homestead from the river? Um, we're only about twenty, uh, sorry, twelve kilometres from the Fitzroy, where the homestead is. Wow! Um, so you're yeah, still so getting the water's coming that whole twelve k's to your homestead. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, when you see photos of it um, from a chopper, it's it's like an ocean, pretty much. So you were chopped out yesterday and you would have flown over that, that area. What does it look like? Um, yeah, you can't, you can't really see uh, very much at all. Our two uh, river frontage paddocks, um, I would say they're 75% underwater, um, maybe more. Um, fortunately, uh, my husband did a survey in a chopper yesterday of the cattle and fortunately it does seem like most of our cattle have made it to higher ground. There is, um, there will be losses, but 
I think we're quite fortunate at the moment with, with our cattle. How, what about infrastructure? Have you had any anything else go under on the property? Um, we've lost at least one tank. Um, our stables, arena and cattle yards have gone under. Um, and like I said, we don't know what's going to happen with the homestead because uh, the river hasn't peaked. It, it's still coming up. So, um, yeah, not sure what's going to happen there. Um, but, yeah, we're hoping for the best. Mm. How are you feeling? It must be pretty tough not knowing what the situation might be in a couple of days' time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yesterday was yesterday was a, a really tough day. Um, we had to wait a long time for the choppers to arrive and with the waters rising so quickly, you know, we, we didn't know if the cattle were all right. We didn't know if our horse plant was all right. Um, so, yeah, not knowing and, yet, like, we're, we were stranded on an island. Like, there's nothing we can do to help. Yeah, so just the not knowing and not being able to do anything and the isolation, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. That's Camille Camp. She's from Calyeda Station near Fitzroy Crossing in WA's Kimberley. She was speaking with Steph Sinclair and you can hear little Jack on her arm too. Uh, Camille and the family um, evacuated the station yesterday to get away from those rising floodwaters. And if you want to check out, well, get a gauge, I guess, on the scale of water in that area at the moment, Camille has quite... Uh, a lot of videos up on her Instagram page. You can check it out, cattleman's underscore daughter on Instagram. Or if you're on Facebook, there's some imagery as well on Calyeda Station's Facebook page. That's spelt with a K, Calyeda Station. It's pretty phenomenal, um, the amount of water in that part of the world. Our thoughts just going out to everyone impacted by those floods across the Territory and in WA as well. Heading off to the newsroom now. After that, you'll hear from the Weather Bureau. But now it is one o'clock. You're listening to The Country Hour at six minutes past one. Michelle Stanley along with you today. Coming up before 1.30, have you ever felt like you've got a bug crawling on you, on your back, even your face? What about in your ear? I hope you have a strong stomach because before 1.30, you're going to meet a woman who was camping recently and one night she felt something unexpected in her ear. He plucked a leg off and dropped the leg and I said, he was, oh, that's a leg. And I, I said to him, don't tell me anything else. I don't want to know. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to know. Don't tell me anything else. He's grabbed it and pulled, pulled the whole thing out. Yep. It's a pretty disturbing story. Uh, it may stop you ever wanting to go camping again or if you're like me, I don't know that I'll ever fall asleep. But it is very, very interesting. Uh, you're going to hear more about it before half past one. Keep listening to the Country Hour for exactly what happened after that. Uh, first, though, on a bit of a nicer topic, let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology where Rebecca Patrick is with you today. Rebecca, there's still a bit of rainfall about the Territory. How much have we had in the last 24 hours? Yeah, um, good afternoon, Michelle. Uh, across the Territory, we've seen fairly moderate rainfall. 
Um, highest has been Rabbit Flat with 39 millimetres in the in the Tanami. Um, uh, across the top end, um, hasn't been all that high rainfall. Highest being McClure Island on 33 millimetres. So around those northern coastal areas, there's still been um, a little bit of rainfall, but across inland parts of the top end, it's been more around that 15 to 25 millimetre range. Um, and, and we've seen some showers and storms across the south as well, um, with generally around 10 to 15 millimetres. Is there likely to be much more on the way today or tomorrow? Yeah, so um, for the next day or two, um, the main focus will probably be the central parts of the NT where we've got the monsoon trough and we're seeing um, thunderstorm activity um, caused by that trough that uh, has the potential for some heavy rainfall. Um, we have issued thunderstorm warnings yesterday and uh, wouldn't be surprised if we have more today once those storms start to fire up. Um, so yeah, it could be some reasonable rainfall in those storms. Um, and then the other thing that we're watching, of course, is ex-tropical cyclone Ellie, which is currently over in the Kimberley, southeast of Broome. That is expected to track southeastwards across WA and approach the southwest of the Territory over the weekend. Around when is the Territory expected to start feeling the impact of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie? Mm, it's, it's kind of going to be getting peripheral impacts um, from, from tomorrow, so particularly the Tanami district um, where we do have that, that trough and um, you've got moisture feeding in, into that area. So as Ellie gets a bit closer, expect to see increased rainfall and thunderstorms uh, across the Tanami. Um, and that's also likely to be where um, the, the low that was Ellie um, moves into the Territory, somewhere around that uh, western Tanami district. Um, we'll also see heavy rainfall impacts over the Lassiter district across the weekend as, as that low moves um, further into the Territory. How heavy could the rainfall be? Um, we're looking at rainfall, um, we could see uh, 50 to 80 millimetres in some parts with isolated falls even as much as 150 possibly. Um, so we are expecting quite um, heavy rainfall through those parts um, that's likely to have impacts on, on the roads in the area. Uh, in terms of warnings today, um, there are the wind warnings on the coast. Are they expected to stick around into the weekend? Is it going to be any good to get out in the boat this weekend? Yeah, uh, it is looking like we will have those um, warnings continuing um, for a few days. Uh, probably we'll start to ease off the, the northern areas and in the Gulf of Carpentaria across the weekend. Um, we'll probably see, continue to see that those warnings continue on Saturday in the west, but um, we are generally expecting an easing of the winds across the weekend. So um, hopefully we'll be able to finally put an end to some of those warnings across the top end. Yeah, I'm sure people would appreciate that. Is there anything else we need to be aware of, um, Rebecca? Yeah, I guess um, just going forward, uh, there is expected to be um, flooding impacts um, 
through southern areas. So, yeah, just be mindful of that and um, keep an eye on, on what's happening with the roads if you're out and about. Thank you for that. Uh, that is Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology with everything you need to know in weather. And, of course, make sure you're just checking online on the Road Reports web, uh, website, on the Bureau's website for any updates to those um, flooding conditions, road conditions, all of the above, uh, before you do hit the road in particular. It's 11 past one. Andrew Dalgleish, Foxalicious Fruit, just out of Catherine. Uh, when I get a spare moment on the tractor, I like listening to uh, Matt and the team on uh, the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. And Dan Fitzgerald is in the studio now with an update about Darwin River Dam. It's at 100% capacity. Yeah, it has filled up and started to spill overnight, according to Power and Water. So uh, the dam, it spilled back in March, but before then it hadn't filled up in the previous three years. So that's uh, good news for Darwin's water supply. It's the main place that Darwin gets its water. Uh, Power and Water says uh, during this spillway overflow, river levels downstream of the dam may rise quickly and cause sudden changes in the levels at the road crossings downstream of the dam. And we advise for your own safety, always stay away from flooded drains, rivers, streams and waterways. So, yeah, good news at uh, Darwin River Dam. Yeah, very good news. Thanks for that, Dan. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 13 past one. Keep listening for more of that story about the woman who felt something a little bit strange in her ear while she was camping. You'll hear exactly what it was that was pulled out and maybe what to do about it if you ever find yourself in a similar situation. It's given me the heebie-jeebies, but it is a very interesting story, so keep listening for that. First, though, farms across the country have been struggling to find workers in the last year or so, really, but one mango farmer in central Queensland has found a willing and ready group of young people giving it their best. Megan Hughes has this story. When you think of first jobs, slinging burgers probably comes to mind. But for 15-year-old Bella Marni, it's packing mangoes. I started about a week ago and so we just saw the mangoes and then packed them away so they get sent off to places. Why did you want to work in a, on a mango farm? Um, it just sounded like a good job, you know, um, get out a bit, yeah. And where did you hear about this job? Um, Mum found it on Facebook. Do any of your mates work on farms? Mm, no. You've only been here for a week, but what's the experience been like so far? It's, it's been pretty good. So fun, yeah. What's your favourite part about the job? I like the people here. They're really nice. While this year's harvest in central Queensland was a few weeks late due to unseasonal conditions, the packing shed has been busy and work starts early, as Miss Marnie explains. So I come at like 5.30 kind of, and yeah, we just start wherever, um, start packing them and the things and sort them and like their quality in that. So when you're looking at sorting quality, what sort of things do you look for? The size and the marks on them and that. Yeah, there's like sizes and which ones would be good to pack in like a premium box in there. Ms Marnie works on Tim Keogh's farm west of Rockhampton. He has around 5,000 mango trees and needs around 25 workers on the farm picking and packing at this time of year. 
But Mr Keogh says it's been difficult finding staff. Getting enough workers has been an issue this year, probably the biggest issue we've ever had. We didn't have a crop last year because of the hailstorm, so we sort of missed the season. So a lot of those younger people that keep coming back to us every year, we sort of lost them for a year and you're not sort of training that staff up each stuff to surround a bit, you know. So that's been one, one factor and always getting staff around this time of the year is difficult, so um, it, it's, it's been challenging. And you, by the looks of it, primarily use locals. Do you use backpackers or Pacific Islander No, labor? we don't. We try and use the, the local staff as much as we can. You know, we, we want the locals to support us, so we try and support them as much as we can. So, But, yeah, as I say, we do struggle. And you did a big call-out on Facebook recently. How did that go? Yeah, no, um, it, was, it was good. We sort of wanted to get the really interested people out to come and have a look at least and make the effort to come and see us. That way you know they're a bit interested. Yeah, it worked pretty well. We, we got a lot of people out of the woodwork and um, some have had a go and, and some we never heard from again. Well, Campton local Jemuel Larkup found his mango picking job on Mr Keogh's farm through social media and he's back for a second season. A big farm and a lot of fruits and then, yeah, it's a pretty good farm here. Yep. What do you think about the job here? Oh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, not too hard, because, yeah, just um, rotating those jobs and everything, so familiar those areas, and, yeah, not too hard, by the way, yeah. yeah. Have you ever picked fruit before? Um, no. It is my second time here. I haven't uh, picked those, some kind of fruits, but mangoes is good, yeah, for me. Each year, a lot of the interest in the work on Mr Keogh's farm comes from the younger generation. Probably the greatest part of it is to see those young people start. Some people, you know, maturity age at different times, but starting them young and then they come back a year later and they're a year older and, of course, as their age goes up, their money goes up, they get a lot out of it and we get a lot out of it. Some of the girls and guys that come back, they just walk back into the shed like they never left, so you don't have to retrain them and then generally better than they were the year before because of that extra year. So um, if we can get three to four years out of this younger generation that keep coming back yeah it's great and and some of them have been like um some families we've had the whole family right through four kids have come right through us and just keep coming back each year um and it's it's fantastic miss marnie is already planning on returning for another year are you going to keep working on for the whole season yeah probably till it ends and then next year i'm going to come back yeah what makes you want to come back next year um, yeah, it's a good place to work, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, I like mangoes. Do you reckon you're going to get sick of them, though? <laughs> Probably. There was mango packer Bella Mahini ending that report from Megan Hughes. So there is work to be found, well, workers to be found, apparently, in the younger generation. It's 18 past one on the Country Hour. This is Margot Price. It's called Change of Heart. That's Margot Price, Change of Heart. It's 22 past one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Michelle Stanley with you today. It's the stuff of nightmares. Waking from your sleep on a camping trip miles away from the nearest hospital to find a cockroach burrowing into your ear. Apparently it happens more often than you might think. Dozens of people have shared their own stories after Kirsty Barge posted her horrific experience on the Caravan and Camping Australia Facebook site. 
went to the toilet in the middle of the night, as you do, um, went back to bed, went to sleep, and then I felt something in my ear. Felt like a moth or something had flown into my ear. So that's when I've sat up and started shaking my head, gone, oh, you know, to try and make it fly out. Um, and then it's gone in further. And that's when I've, got, I've, I've said to my husband, I'm like, oh my God, turn the lights on, turn the lights on. There's something in my ear. And I started shaking my head. I've got a sore neck from shaking my head so much. Um, I started shaking my head to try and flip this thing out and it w- wouldn't come out. And then, but, you know, that's when he, he's gotten the light and shines a light in my ear to, and he's gone, oh yeah, there is something in there. I don't know what that is. And that's when um, he goes, quick, put your head over the sink. And he started pouring water in there to try and think, you know, the water might make it want to back out. Um, we learned that cockroaches don't go backwards. And, <laughs> you know, the water made it go in further. And that's when I, in amongst all the panic, remembered that I had the tweezers handy. So I said, oh, grab the, grab the tweezers. Um, and, he, yeah, he, he plucked a leg off and <laughs> dropped the leg. And I said, oh, that's a leg. And I, I said to him, don't tell me anything else. I don't want to know. <laughs> oh. I don't want to know. Don't tell me anything else. And then that's when he, he's grabbed it and started pulling a little bit. And I was like, jumped a mile because it felt gross. And he's like, no, you need to stay still. He's like, I think I can get it. You need to stay still. And he's he's grabbed it and pulled pulled the whole thing out. Oh and my dropped god! Dropped it in the sink, and he goes, he goes, oh, it, it was a cockroach. And I've just sat on the floor with the dog for ten minutes, just like breathing and going, is it out? Is it gone? Check my. <laughs> I almost bloody died when I saw the thing because I thought it was like a teeny tiny, like little thing from the glimpse that I saw after the whole shimozzle, but it was way bigger than I thought. <laughs> so it was just a, a big moment of um, relief, I suppose, of just, oh, my God, that, and realising that it could have been much worse if he, if he didn't get it out and we had to go driving for the hospital. It would have been so much worse. And then, we, like I said, we, we've got about you know, about 20 minutes of gravel track to get out of where we were and that's not something I want to do at night or you know, in a, in a bit of a hurry, you know. Oh, you must have just felt so revolted. Yes, 800%. <laughs> Honestly, it was, it was horrendous. It was so disgusting. When I saw the bug the next day, I was just like, Bleh. <laughs> started tarraging, looking at the thing. And when I saw it the next day, so I, was, I, sat, I sat and I counted and, you know, could, you know, made sure it had five legs because I knew my husband had plucked one off by accident when he was trying to pull it out to make sure it had, had its other five legs and both antennas and its wings. It wasn't missing any bits. Like, oh. Make sure there was no, no bits left behind. And when you shared your experience to mm. the Caravan and Camping Australia Facebook site, yeah. what sort of reaction did you get? Most people are echoing the whole, oh, my God, that's disgusting, gross, that's a nightmare kind of Everyone has that general consensus. Um, and But there's also been quite a few people sharing stories of, you know, similar experiences of having bugs in their ear and what, what they found successful to get them out. And there's been a few comments from people that work in emergency departments or um, that kind of thing of saying, like, what the appropriate first aid is for an insect in the ear. Now we know, you know, the whole oil thing's supposed to be the first go-to. Kirsty Bard, she was speaking with Jennifer Nichols after her experience finding a cockroach in her ear while she was camping. Dr Adam Blonde is an ear, nose and throat specialist and he says he treats cases of insects in ears at least every couple of weeks and the numbers go up at this time of year as well with more people camping over summer. So this is what Dr Adam Blonde's advice is. If they're in and they're deep, the classic thing to do is you put an oil drop in like olive oil or um, baby oil or something like that because it suffocates them. 
and um, stops them from moving around and they're eventually dead and stop because it's the movement that drives you crazy. It's incredibly noisy and painful. Um, and if you try to get them out or you put water in behind them, they tend to, a lot of them, dig the barbs on their feet and their legs into the side of your ear and push themselves further down onto your eardrum, which is the most sensitive part. So do you need to warm the oil or just cold no, oil? It's a normal normal sort of like room temperature. If you put cold liquids in your ear, it'll actually make your head spin one way. And if you put warm liquids in your ear, it'll spin the other way. It's called the caloric effect. So it's a really good party trick. <laughs> but you don't want to do that. So it's just room temperature oils. Okay. Wow. And what sort of potential threat do these insects pose to your hearing if nothing is done? It depends how big they are and how alive they are. Um, small cockroaches are really common. Um, occasionally spiders and that, but they're more likely like little mozzies and moths and things that get caught in there. One of the very old-fashioned things that you can try that does work in some of the flying insects is you turn on a light off in the room and you put a torch to the outside of your ear so there's a light for it to go towards and it sometimes will come out on its own if it's small and it's alive and it's not stuck. But otherwise, your, your best option is you just fill the ear up with oil. You've got ages. It's not going to give you a horrible infection. It'll block your ear up and feel quite bad, but then it gives you, you know, hours to days to get to somewhere where they can take it out. Okay. And will that oil kill it? How quickly will it kill it? Pretty quickly. Yeah, it'll suffocate it completely. Where When you put the water in, you often get air bubbles. And a lot of insects can survive under the water, but they can't survive with the oil. So within minutes, if not seconds, it'll, it'll die. Oh, Dr. Adam Blonde, the thought of it just creeps me out. It does freak people out. You get people coming in traumatised majorly. Even if somebody's pulled it out with a pair of tweezers, if it's struggled, it's often left wings and legs and things in there as well, and that sometimes affects your hearing and makes it feel all blocked. And when your ears blocked like that, it actually gives you all these sensory changes. Your side of your face feels all numb and your directional sense is off and you feel wrong, like really stupid and full of cotton wool. So it can be really distressing for some people. That's ear, nose and throat specialist Dr Adam Blonde. He was speaking with Jennifer Nichols about what to do if you ever wake up in that horrifying situation of something like a cockroach in your ear. Some room temperature water in the ear should help out and get to, well, a doctor if possible. Uh, if you want to read more about, I don't know why you would want to because it's pretty gross, but if you are interested and want to read more about this story, you can head to the ABC rural website. There's plenty more. That is it from me for the Country Hour today. I'll be back with you from half past 12 tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon.